You're listening to Classroom Confessions with Katie Smith, a podcast where teachers share advice, encouragement, and the realities of today's classroom. All right, here we go. Episode 8 of Classroom Confessions. Happy Saturday, everybody. Sorry this is late. I've just been doing some research uh, because I'm talking about something I'm super, super interested in, and I will get into that topic in a second, but I wanted to say welcome uh, for those of you who are new. I just finished my first week back to school. My feet are tired. My ankles hurt. My feet are not used to being in shoes. My body is tired, but... I had a good week. I'm excited about this group of kids. Haven't had any behavior issues like last year. So this is going to be a good year. I'm claiming it right now. I'm going to jump right into my rose, thorn, and bud. So every week I talk about my rose. The rose is something good that happened this week. The thorn is something bad that happened this week. And the bud is something I'm looking forward to. So There was a lot of good this week, so I'm not going to do a thorn because why stain the week with a thorn when everything was great? Um, My first week is done. My kids were awesome, as I already mentioned, and I'm super excited about this year. The other rose I had this week is that I had three former students reach out to me. They're all going to college tier. And they all wanted to go get dinner before they left for college. So we all went out to dinner and that was so cool because when they were in high school, we were all on the same campus. They would come to my class. We'd talk about life, what's going on. And we just had an opportunity to do that before they launch into this new chapter of their life. They're going to college. That is so crazy. That is so crazy to me. Um, But I'm very excited for all of them. So that was awesome. And then my bud, some things I'm looking forward to. I am packing. I pulled out all my kitchen stuff I need to pack today. So got to get on that. And I'm really excited to get into the groove of the new year. I'm teaching a new curriculum. And so that's exciting. And I just don't know what the groove is yet. So I'm trying to figure that out. So to come in future episodes. So what we're talking about today is something that I'm going to call cultural capital. And I started this week with the idea that I wanted to discuss this concept of funds of knowledge. And funds of knowledge is part of cultural capital. But as I started doing my research, I thought it would be more appropriate to discuss the cultural capital that shows up in our classrooms. And so as many of you know, some of you know, I guess, I have my master's degree in curriculum instruction and design, and my focus is multicultural education. And so the research that I used for today came from my coursework and then some additional research that I had done over the years for my thesis paper. So that's where all my research comes from. I will be posting the citations on my website so you guys can check those out. But I wanted to jump in to this topic as we as teachers are getting into the school year because I think it's important as teachers to incorporate students knowledge into our classrooms and as a teacher I'm very focused on what do my students know what are they coming in with but more of like content based what do they know and what are they coming in with and I forget that they have so much knowledge outside of the classroom that they are bringing to the table And so today I just wanted to talk about those different 
pieces of knowledge that students are bringing to the table and how they're developed in their communities that some of us may know nothing about. Um, And so before we get into today, I wanted to define some terms for you. And so the first term I'm going to define is cultural capital. It can mean many, many things. But for me today in our discussion, cultural capital is going to be defined by Franklin and cited by TJ Yoso in the article I read. And like I said, citations will be provided on my website. But cultural capital for our purposes today is the sense of group consciousness and collective identity that serves as a resource aimed at the advancement of an entire group. So when we are looking at specifically our communities of color and our students of color, these are all resources that that community possesses that help the community to thrive and to advance. I'm going to start off talking about uh, the deficit perspective. And the deficit perspective is also defined by Yoso. And it takes the position that minority students and families are at fault for poor academic performance because students don't have the skills and parents don't value and support their child's education. I know you teachers listening, we've all had this thought, like this parent doesn't care, this parent isn't checking their students' work, they aren't helping support me, I've called them, it's not working. And so we have this deficit perspective that that means they don't care and that might not be the case. Um, And so we're going to delve into the deficit perspective a little bit and what that means and how we can try and combat that deficit perspective by using cultural capital and then by also using something called funds of knowledge. And that is defined by Mole et al. in their article. And funds of knowledge are historically accumulated and cultural developed bodies of knowledge and skills essential for household or individual functioning and well-being. So essentially funds of knowledge are... <clears throat> is information that the community has created or learned about in this process of developing community that can help community members in the future. Sorry, I've packed up my table, so I'm sitting on the floor and moving around. Sorry if you can hear that. Um, so as I mentioned, today I want to start talking about the deficit perspective and the deficit perspective teachers bring to the classroom. And this includes me, right? We as teachers were taught and educated in an educational system where the deficit perspective was implicit. It's built into the educational system. And this educational system and deficit perspective says that schooling is a way for the middle class to achieve social mobility. So schooling is a way to move up in the world. You go to school, you go to college, you get a job, you're successful, you buy that house, you get the white picket fence and two and a half kids. And the way to do that is through schooling. Um, But the deficit perspective sees schooling as a way for the middle class to thrive. But it also uh, puts the communities of color and people of color in a position where they are seen as disadvantaged and that they lack something. They don't have all the things they need to be able to use this social mobility to thrive in society, whether it's formal education or social skills or the cultural capital to have social mobility. So these schools and this education system is set up for the middle class to thrive and for everybody who's not in the middle class to be looked down upon in a way because they lack something. They don't have everything that they need 
to be in the middle class. So they must be missing something. And the problem is that we were educated in this system. So when we enter the classroom, we just embody this deficit perspective because that's what society has put on us. That's what society has taught us. And we knowingly or unknowingly carry this deficit perspective um, and we put it on our students of color and students of low SES. Whether we know it or not, we think that they are lacking. We think their family doesn't care. We think that we need to save them when in reality the opposite is taking place. And this is problematic for teachers because we fail to see the cultural capital that these students are bringing to the classroom. And we don't see all of the skills that these students of color possess because we are coming at it from a deficit perspective. For example, this example is given in the article by Yoso that if a student comes to our classroom and they've spent the whole summer in Paris, we see it as this grand adventure and they're held in high esteem like, wow, you traveled to Europe. Tell us about your adventures. But students of color who maybe went and they spent the summer in Mexico and working the ranches and living life in Mexico, they are not held in that same high esteem as the student who went to Paris, when in reality, both students are international travelers being immersed in a culture that is different than what we have in America. And so both of their experiences should be held in the same regard and treated the same. Because they have those same skills. They had to use their passport. They, you know, are learning new customs. And so the way that we approach the same experiences but with different students, it's just one way to think about that deficit perspective. Another example of this deficit perspective that I've seen is when students are put in a position to translate for their parents or community members. In order for a student to translate for their parents, they have to have such a command of not only English, because that's what most teachers are speaking in, but also the language they're translating into, whether it be Chinese, Russian, Spanish, um, Vietnamese. They have to have a com- such a command of both languages to be able to translate for their parents or for their community members. They become that intermediary between the school and home or between home and a government agency. And from the deficit perspective, what teachers tend to see is this parent just doesn't know English. They're not trying. They haven't learned. And we need to challenge that deficit perspective to think about What skills does my student possess to be able to translate for their parents, to be able to be that person that's bringing English into the home? We need to stop coming at it from a, my student lacks, my student doesn't have, the parents aren't giving, to what can they provide? What does this community that I am teaching in have to provide? And so in order for, in order to change our deficit perspective, perspective of students, we need to really look at them and who they are before they come into the classroom, before they come into my classroom. Because this student is a whole person outside of my classroom. They are participating in society in ways that I don't even fully comprehend outside of my classroom. So what are they bringing into my classroom? And in an article by Jeff Junkin Andrade, he completed research. And in, at the beginning of his article, he talks about how they're was a push for multicultural education in teacher training programs. But there needs to be much more than that. And I'm here to advocate 
and say that, yes, he is correct. Because when I went through my teacher education training, I remember taking my multicultural education class. We discussed how we weren't going to be going into classrooms where the students would look like us. Or they didn't have the same background as us. And that was it. Like we didn't really delve into what those backgrounds were, what our background was, what were what we were bringing to the table. And then we had a person from the Anti-Defamation League come and speak. I'm here to tell you that that class did not prepare me to go into the world and teach students who came from a different background. I was not prepared to go into the world and combat this deficit perspective that is there, that is just implicit in teaching. It wasn't until I was at UNLV taking my master's class, my first multicultural education class with Dr. Clark, and I had to come to terms with my whiteness. I had to come to terms with I was white. I was walking around in this world with privilege, not because I wanted to, but because that's just the way America is, that as a white person, I walk in this world with privilege. I also had to accept the fact that because of my whiteness, I benefited from racist policies and practices present in the United States. Whether I wanted to or not, this is what being white came with. I was benefiting from racist policies in history. From the time people landed in America and took lands from Native Americans, I was benefiting from these policies that saw people of color as other and less than. And so I was benefiting from these racist policies and racism, according to Manning Marble and cited by T.J. Yoso, is a system of ignorance, exploitation, and power used to oppress African Americans, Latinos, Asians, Pacific Americans, American Indians, and other people on the basis of ethnicity, culture, and color. And as a white person, there were policies and practices that had been in place for years, years before I was born, hundreds of years. And because I was white, I was benefiting. And that's a hard pill to swallow when you're sitting in a class learning about this privilege that you have and you've never had to confront this. And so it wasn't until I could acknowledge that I was white I was walking in privilege as a white woman and seeing how I walked in the world and how others viewed me. It wasn't until I acknowledged all of that that I was fully able to accept and learn and do the work it takes to learn about the communities that I was teaching in and to learn about the cultural capital and funds of knowledge that my students were bringing to the class. I had students who were trying to make money on the side, bringing candy to class, selling candy in class, because they were trying to make money. And with the deficit perspective, that's seen as a negative. You're breaking the rules. But if you flip that, they're being an entrepreneur. They're going out, buying this candy, figuring out what they need to sell it for so they can make money. Why aren't those skills celebrated with our students? It's because they're breaking the rules. We're not seeing it as a way for them to make money and build a business. 
And so that's what we need to change as teachers. We need to change our perspective from the deficit they are lacking to what skills do they possess and what are they bringing to the table. One component of cultural capital I kind of mentioned before was funds of knowledge. And funds of knowledge, defined by Mole, is um, knowledge that communities of color create and foster in the development of their social networks. So funds of knowledge are created by communities and used to better the communities and to make the communities prosper and to make the community successful and looking at the research that was done and presented in his in the article um these teachers went out and they got into the communities of their students and they saw that there was an uncle who was teaching one of the students to fish the dad was teaching the student about business policies and cross-border policies and importing and exporting and the student was learning about immigration policies from his family's experiences and there was a community of people building and pouring all of this knowledge into the student the student was being taught by the community and learning these life skills and the teacher was faced with well, how do I bring this into the classroom? These students have all of these skills. How do I foster these skills in the classroom? How do I bring these skills into the classroom? Because they know more about the import-export trade than I do. How can I discuss that? And how can I build into their knowledge? And the teacher wouldn't have known that unless they went into the community and learned this information. It's changing the deficit perspective, going out and seeing what the community can provide to you and what the community can provide to your classroom to help you educate the students in front of you. Yoso also discusses this social network um, that is created in communities and and they describe it as um, two different kinds of capital. There's a social capital and there's a navigational capital found in these communities of color. And both of these capitals... These types of capital help students to develop resiliency. And and the definition of being resilient, according to Google, is the capacity to overcome difficulties and essentially bounce back. This resiliency and this resilient within this resilience framework, students in these communities develop these incredible critical thinking skills. They're faced with a challenge, so how do I fix it? How do I overcome it? I had students who sometimes didn't know what they were going to eat the next day. And they had to use what skills they had to figure out how to get food home. Whether it was asking me to buy groceries or saving food from the lunch line. They were constantly thinking of how to get out of these situations and building this resiliency. I'm faced with a challenge how do I fix it? How do I overcome it? And these, this resiliency and this critical thinking is so much more prevalent in the communities of color and these urban communities because that's what they're being taught. That's what they're being taught outside of school. And how do you bring that into the classroom? I've seen this. I have taught in two schools. One was an urban school with 93% African-American and black students. It was a charter school, but still in the urban community. The other school is a suburban of 
in an affluent area of the city I live in. It has what some would call a diverse population, but it's predominantly white and Hispanic. And there is a noticeable, 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 noticeable difference in the critical skills possessed by the students at both of these schools. The urban school students would challenge me. They would challenge the status quo. They would challenge what I was teaching them. Because they're thinking about all the different possibilities. And my favorite example is when we were learning about a civil war and we read the Emancipation Proclamation. And traditionally, history teaches that Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. And you have one of my students say, but did he free the slaves? Is that what this document is telling us? Miss Smith, we need a Socratic seminar. Okay, students, let's sit down and talk about this. But students in the affluent area aren't challenging me. They are not challenging what they are learning. They are not questioning what they are learning. They are not questioning the status quo. They want the answers to do well because their purpose for school is different. And if teachers come to the classroom with this idea that students are going to school to be successful and go to college and climb up that social ladder, we are starting with this deficit perspective that if you do not want that, if you do not want to go to school, to go to college, to make more money, to be better, then you are lacking. And we need to challenge that. Not everybody is meant to go to school. School is not meant to climb the social ladder, and that is how society sees it. And so we need to start embracing these skills that our students have that are not the norm. And how do we do that? How do we learn about these communities and dive into the cultural capital? And that's what we are facing today. How do we access that? Whether it's a survey with the parents, spending time in the community. And those are the things that we need to bring into our classroom. How do we tap into this cultural capital to bring into our class, to make my class relevant for the students who are sitting in front of me? And so Jeff Duncan Andrade talks about three types of teachers present in urban schools. And the first type is a gangsta. These are teachers who carry resentment for the parents and students and community they teach in. They're not doing enough. They don't care. They don't want to be here. Why am I here? And they believe in things like zero tolerance policies. They believe in tracking. They believe in widespread remediation. Because they think that students aren't capable or don't care. And what that teacher is missing is the ability to understand what students need. And the ability to, they're missing the ability to look at the students, see what they have, see what their needs are, and challenge them at their level. And so those teachers, the gangsters, are not helping the urban schools. Then you have the wangsta. And these are teachers who talk a good game. They know what needs to be done. And I'm here to tell you the work is hard. It is not easy. It is not easy to go into urban schools and fight for your students and pour into your students every single day. It's not easy. And the wanksters, they know what needs to be done. They know the hard work that needs to be put in. And they're just exhausted. They become emotionally detached from their work. And they just don't want to put in the work it takes to be in those communities. And then you have a writer. A writer is someone who can be counted on. 
Think of that term ride or die that we use. Oh, this is my ride or die. They will always be there. They are successful with many students, with a wide range of students, because they create deep connections with their students. They know their students. They know where their students come from. They know the background. They know what their students are dealing with. And in pouring into their students and making those connections, they know how to push their students. They know how to take their student from level A to level B to level C and to get them to those high standards. And so Jeff Duncan Andrade presents uh, five ways that teachers can be writers. And the first one is coming to a school with a critical conscious purpose. Am I serving these students? Am I serving their needs? What does the community need? What does the community have to offer me? How can the community support me? How can I support the community? Who from the community can I bring in to help educate these students? And then using relevant material. The day and age we live in is not the day and age we grew up in. It's not the day and age that textbooks were written in. We need to bring relevant material to the students, material that's relevant to their lives, something they can go out and use. And I know that's not always easy. I know. But as long as you are trying to pour into these students and give the community what they need, give the students what they need to be successful in their community, you are, you are doing the work. The second thing you need is duty. There's a duty to the community and the students. The students are part of the community. The teachers do their best to become part of the community. If they're not living in the community, they're in the community. They're visible in community. They're talking about the things the students need, like the critical consciousness. They're talking about current events and real life stuff. And I was faced with the struggle I was teaching in the urban school when Ferguson happened and my students wanted to talk about it and they deserved to talk about it. I personally as a teacher did not know enough about it to talk about it, to host a discussion about it. So I took some time, did the research, put in the work, taught the students the history behind police violence, police brutality, and then let them talk about it. You need to know the the background to discuss it. But they were able to discuss it and then write letters to the president about how they needed to work on police brutality and police violence. Taking real life events and bringing them into the classroom. Because that's what students wanted to learn and that's what they wanted to connect to. The third thing you need to do to be a writer is to prepare. You are constantly learning and changing. Your your lesson should never be the same year to year. The students who are sitting in front of you are different every single year. And your curriculum needs to meet their needs. I'm going to say that again. Your curriculum needs to meet the needs of the students sitting in front of you. Not the students you had the year before. Not the students you had your very first year. It needs to meet the needs of the students whose butts are in the chairs in your classroom today. And if that means taking longer on a topic because they're interested, that's what it means. If it means bringing in more current events, that's what it means. If it means preparing them to have real-world discussions about real-life things going on in their community, 
then that's what it means. But if you are not constantly and evolving, if you are not constantly changing and evolving your curriculum to meet the needs of the students sitting in front of you, then you are not benefiting them. I know it's a hard pill to swallow, but you're not. And so preparing yourself to meet the needs of the students sitting in front of you is one way to become a writer. The last two things. The first thing is Socratic sensibility. And what this means is you, teacher, listening, you're reflecting on the best practices of your classroom and students. What worked? What didn't work? What did students love? What did students not love? What did they like? What did they not like? How can I better instill these skills in them to be successful in their community? And constantly reflecting on your practice so you can better the practice of or you can better the skills of your students and meet, meet their needs. And then last is trust. Trust is earned. Trust is earned. Jeff Duncan Andrade says that you don't walk into a classroom and get, get trust. You have to earn it. Because especially in our communities of color, you are working in an institution that represents colonialism and repression of people of color. You have to earn that trust. You have to build those relationships. You have to earn that respect. You cannot walk into these rooms and demand respect. You have to earn it. You have to put in your time. You have to show that you are pouring into these students and that you want the community to thrive and succeed. You And once you have this trust and respect, you can then push those students to the higher standards and higher expectations. But you need to figure out how to earn their trust. How are you going to pour into the community so they trust you? And I think it's harder for teachers who teach in diverse populations because the communities are different. The community needs are different for each of the students sitting in front of you. Your black students need different things than your white students need different things than your Hispanic students and your um, students who are from the Pacific Islands. All of those communities need different things. And how do you pour into each of those students? And I'm here to tell you it's hard. And I'm here to tell you that it's challenging. And I'm here to tell you it's worth it. And so if you go out and earn the trust and respect of these communities and you build those connections and you start pouring into these students and coming at education from the opposite of deficit perspective, I don't know what that is right now, but if you come in with this idea that these students and these communities can pour into you in your classroom and you see the student's skills and you are seeing that they are bringing these skills to the table and it's a blessing and you are not seeing it as a negative or something they lack, then you are doing the work. And so I'm here to challenge you this week. And our quote this week comes from me. Our quote this week is, figure out how to be a writer in your community and fight for it with all you've got. Figure out how to be a writer in your community and fight for it with all you've got. Figure out how to build that trust, how to challenge yourself, how to prepare and constantly change your lessons and how to show that you have this duty to the community and how to come in with a critical conscious purpose. What does the community have to offer me? 
How can I give back to the community? How can I change my curriculum? How can I be better? And how can I earn their trust? Figure out how to do all of those things and fight for it. Fight for it. It is hard. It is hard, hard, hard. And it's hard again. But the reward is so great. The reward is so, so great. So that's what I have for you guys this week. The references to my articles will be up on my website. You guys can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Radio Public. If you like what you're hearing and you are enjoying this, please leave a review. You can find us at classroomconfessions.net. We have all the episodes up there. All of our resources are up there. So please go check that out. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Classroom Confessions Podcast. And you can find us on Twitter at Class Confess Pod. And so I encourage you this week to go be a change. Show up to your classroom on Monday and challenge a deficit perspective. Look at those kids with those skills that they have to bring to you. As a reminder this week, you are alive, you are kind, you are patient, you are wonderful, you are fearless, you are important. You can teach anything, you can be anything, and you can change that world. Go be that writer for your students. You're doing the damn thing. You've made it another week. Bye, y'all.